presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor, Matt Moniz, will be along in just a few minutes. He's just grabbing us some grub. We, uh, we... We're pretty hungry, so hurry up, Monies. Welcome to the program. We are here to talk with you about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. And normally when we uh, discuss when we discuss the paranormal here, you know, we, we like to to keep a scientific spin on things. We incorporate a lot of the superstition aspects, a lot of the folklore aspects and a lot of the you know, just the socio, so the social mores and the social attachments that we put onto the idea of the paranormal. Uh, tonight, all of that is going to come into the, into play in the discussion that we have tonight because we're going to talk about 2012. And it's something that we have not touched upon at all, really, uh, here in the now four years, four full years that we've been doing the program, uh, mainly because I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what to think of it. Uh, we've heard all the information, and we know the different directions that you can go with the idea of what's going to happen on December 21st, 2012. But there's so many avenues, we never really knew where to start with discussing this topic. Well, tonight's guest can certainly help us get that ball rolling. Alexandra Bruce has written a book called 2012 Science of Superstition, the Definitive Guide to the Doomsday Phenomenon, and it's the companion book, and I'm going to use that term loosely. It's a companion book to the film uh, that's also put out, not the the big Roland Emmerich you know, blockbuster movie that came out uh, recently, but the film 2012 Science of Superstition, a documentary film uh, with numerous interviews discussing the idea of 2012. And I don't want to call this a companion book, because this is a book that, aside from the film, should stand out there as a definitive tome on, you know, 2012. This is a book that uh, anybody that's interested in the subject matter should read, regardless of whether or not they're going to watch the film as well. Uh, but I highly recommend the film as well. And they're both available from disinfo.com, which you can get to right through spookysouthcoast.com if you are interested in purchasing, purchasing them. Uh, I watched the film earlier. I've been working on the book for a few weeks now, and it's chock full of information. I still don't know whether I should be uh, excited about the idea of December 21st, 2012, or whether I should be hiding under my bed, because there's so many different ways it can go. And we're going to touch upon all of those with Alexandra tonight. We'll also take your calls. 508-996-0500-1877-996-1420 to call in toll-free. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can also email us spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. I will make sure that we get all the questions to Alexandra if you want to email them. I, I can just imagine, though, uh, what, what people are wondering about 2012 because I'm wondering it myself. And 
it's a Wednesday, right, Matt? We, we've done the math. We've, we've looked at the calendars. It's a Wednesday night. Yep. Looking ahead to 2012, assuming that we're still on the air, which, heck, why wouldn't we be? Station loves us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't said anything yet that will get us kicked off, but then again, you know, we've got quite a while to go here. But it's a Wednesday. Normally, we were on Saturday nights. That year, the Saturday night would be Christmas Eve, and there's no way I'm going to be coming in here on Christmas Eve to do a show. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> but uh, maybe we can get the show shifted to Wednesday, December 21st of 2012, and we can be here together, brothers in arms, as uh, as the world either ends or enters a new period of enlightenment. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we take a break? When we come back, we'll get Alexandra on the phone. We'll talk with her about the book, 2012, Science or Superstition, which if you're going to read one book on the idea of 2012, this is the one to read. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, is entering the studio right now. And Matt, who who is that? Was that uh, Leslie Gore? Uh, Skeeter Davis. Okay. And was that already on your iPod, or did you put it on just for today? Um, I just put it on today, dude. <laughs> dude. All right. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Of course, we're laughing here about the end of the world, but it's... It's not a funny matter, and we're going to find out, is 2012, December 21st, 2012, is that going to be the end of the world? Because if it is, I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. I can't stand around here talking to you guys all night. But uh, we're going to find out about that with the author of the book, 2012 Science or Superstition, Alexandra Bruce, graduated from Brown University with a BA in semiotics, additional studies of cultural criticism, film theory and production at Le- at L'Université de la Sorbonne in Paris, and NYU Film School. At one time, she had her own production company and produced, directed, and edited over 40 music videos for the major music companies during the heyday of the music video era. Wow, we could get just some stories from that alone. <laughs> These days, she works in film, television, catalog, book production, DVD publishing and marketing, cable TV advertising sales, and working on six, soon-to-be-seven published books, uh, including Beyond the Bleep, Beyond the Secret, and the latest, of course, 2012 Science or Superstition. Good evening, Alexandra. How are you? Hi. Hello. Hi. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. Well, if you're if you're in a good mood and you're upbeat and happy, then I guess that means that the world isn't going to end on December 21st, 2012. Well, I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, I know plenty of people who are kind of putting their head in the sand about the whole 2012 thing. They don't want to know what's going on, and they, they, they don't want to know what the predictions are. Uh, but I've been telling everybody since I started reading this book that if you want the complete story, this is the place to go, because it really does seem to present all the different cases and all the different sides. It's pretty encyclopedic, It's uh, and it's attempting to be as entertaining at the same time as it is 
encyclopedia as possible. And, you know, if you don't have an encyclopedic mind, it's really hard to get through from one end to the other, maybe. But um, so you can just kind of zero, you know, look into the, the table of contents of the index Look, you're looking for and, and then read that section or whatever. But if you are an uh, informationaholic the way I am, I mean, you just, my, uh, my UK publicist said, I loved your book so much, I read it twice. <laughs> he says, I'm not one of your, you know, have a nice day, Americans, you know, I, I don't say stuff like that. I, I, I loved it. I read it twice. I couldn't stop. It was, so fun, you know, and if you really love how to see the interrelationship of things, and and I, there's some stuff that I stumbled on that I, I really want to make uh, films about that uh, were not covered in the film, but this was a companion book to at all, um, an emerging uh, interdisciplinary science called geomythology, which... <clears throat> I found to be completely interesting. There are many Greek and Roman and biblical and even uh, legends in the Rig Veda and the Vedas of, of India um, that relate to uh, cosmic events um, that you can actually The latest see. news, weather, and sports. Oh, and see, our computer's already hit 2012 mode. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can still see, like... For example, there's the, the story of the son of Helios, the sun god, Phaeton, in Greek mythology. He, I guess he was on his, uh, his, his visit, you know, his mother was a mortal and the dad was a god, so he was having his, like, weekend, his um, visitation weekend with dad. He said, Dad, if you really loved me, you'd let me drive the chariot for the day. And he was like, oh, okay, son. So he lets the, the kid drive the chariot for the day, and of course he crashes it. And uh, you, this all is based upon the presumptions of a book that were first presented in 1975 called Hamlet's Mill by uh, an MIT professor and another woman. And what they basically said is that so much of ancient myth and legend come from celestial observations because there was no science back then, so they had to turn these things into stories. Um, and what they believed this was was a cometary impact. And then the Greek knew that it was north of them, and now they think they found the actual location of where, where this lo- thing landed in uh, the Kingau region of Bavaria. And there's a little there's a lake there called Lake Tutensi and a huge debris field of, like, ellipsoid-shaped you know, dents in the ground, and uh, they're pretty sure that that's where Phaeton's comet landed. Uh, and there are many, many sources for objects uh, that, that clobber us constantly. And that's another thing that this this Holocene um, Impact Working Group is is also talking about is that we we get hit by things that are half a kilometer in length. I mean, quite frequently. But most most of these objects land in the ocean because that's what most of the surface of the Earth is, is the ocean. And they believe that they have pinpointed the exact date, for example, of the uh, asteroid impact in the Southern Pacific Ocean that resulted in the flood of Noah that is not just only something that happened in the Middle East. It happened globally. It's recorded in 45 
hundred myths in um, Native American legends of South America, east of the Andes alone. And the Maya, in their own legends, emerged from a flood in their last, their last quote-unquote world where the calendar begins mm-hmm. is at the beginning of life restarting after a flood. And that's something that fascinated me because I'd never heard of geomythology before reading this book. And I didn't realize, I mean, maybe it's my own ignorance, but I didn't realize that the flood was something that was a global event in terms of the recounting and the, and the history. Uh, you know, I only know of the mentions in the Bible and to, to hear that it was indeed a global thing and it was uh, apparently a real thing. It's not just a storytelling device. It was an actual earth changing event. Yeah, and if you really think of the implications of a huge asteroid striking the Earth, they found the crater. It's about almost 40 miles wide. It's at the bottom of 12,000 feet of ocean, and it lofted so much seawater into the atmosphere that it could cause something like all the you know many things that are recorded in all of these uh, worldwide legends, like hurricane-force winds, tsunamis. Um, 40 days and 40 nights of rain. And then, if you think about it, it's salt water, so it spoils crops, causes famines, kills people, and looks like the end of the world to some people, you know? And um, so the guy from Los Alamos studied enough of these things and ran enough of these things through his computer that um, he also saw that many of these coincided with a solar eclipse, and he believes that the, the date for this impact was 2807 B.C. on May 10th. Wow. <laughs> like with that kind of almost, uh, what would you call it, Maya-like, uh, you know, accuracy. Because, for example, a really good example of, of what the significance of, oh, you know, the Maya calendar is ending. It's not, the Maya calendar is not ending. It's one thing that needs to get straightened out. It, it's a cycle within the long count calendar, which was a, a very new calendar for them. It was only created in about 200 or 100 or so, you know, BC. Mm-hmm. Uh, in there, you know, compared to they were, they've been around for a long time. I mean, as human beings in that part of the world, they've been there for 10, since 10,000 BC. So, um, by, 4,000 B.C., they had domesticated animals, and by 3,000 B.C., you know, maybe something did happen. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they were getting themselves out of a, kind of a Stone Age uh, and, and building pyramids at that point, um, which they were. <laughs> they actually set the beginning of the Long Count calendar 3,000 years into their own past and had had it set on a very specific date where there was a zenithal passage of the sun, which means that at sixteen at sorry, fifteen degrees north, which is where Maya country is, the sun is directly overhead and you cast no shadows. You know? It, it's it's one of those you know, when the sun is directly overhead. Mm-hmm. And that's an important uh passage of an important astrological feature in Mesoamerican culture. Um, like, we don't care about zenithal passages in our astrology, but they care a great deal about that. It's very significant to them. Um, and then they have the end on uh, December 21st, 
2012 during a winter solstice. And um, they were pretty good at things. So that's what, that's you know, it's kind of weird. It's like there are some scientific, bona fide, astronomical things going on right now that are disturbing. And we, we know how phenomenally accurate the uh, Maya were. They were predicting eclipses thousands of years into the past and, and future that, you know, took us thousands of years to develop the, you know, robots to do it for us. Um, so it's sort of scary because it's bolstered by modern science and ancient prophecy and maybe some white guilt mixed in there for almost making these people extinct, but them winning, actually. And from the point of view of Native American culture, the end of the quote-unquote world, you know, or civilization or times or whatever you want to call it that we're living in, the native the end of this would be a good thing from that point of view. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, I, I'm, when you look at it, it's considered to be positive for them, by the way. When you they look at it as the beginning of a new age. They don't see it as the end of the world. They see it as the beginning of the new good good thing for them. When you look back at how they were able to make these, pre- I mean, here we are trying to predict things that are going to happen, you know, five years into the future using telescopes and, and computer models and all this assistance. Yeah. And, and they're basically using, I guess, from what we can fathom, uh, you know, reflecting pools. Looking into these pools of water at reflections yeah. of what was in the sky. Well, and in completely um, assiduous record keeping, you know, uh, for for thousands of years. Yeah, they're really, seeing they're seeing slight movements of the stars that you know aren't perceivable within a, a person's lifetime, and they're able to track it for for almost millennia. Right, and so maybe you know there could be some. You know, that they were kind of in an altered state, supposedly. They were, a lot of them, those claims that they eat mushrooms and, 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 and toad, you know, venom were part of the rituals and stuff. So there could be an alt- altered consciousness aspect uh, to that. I, I, you know, that, that it has been put forward by John Major Jenkins, who spent his life studying these people and this. Work for the Beatles. Especially the 2012 uh, end date in particular. He's like the 2012 guy. Actually, we just uh, finished a movie about him, about his life work. Really? It'll be coming out. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's right now. It keeps changing, but right now it's 2012, the beginning. And it will be uh, released by Equilibrium Entertainment on a video on demand site called Axios. But I don't know what the date is. Yet, but the, it's a brand new video on demand site, and uh, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about it. But there's nothing like it out there as far as what this site does. Um, it offers levels of, 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 of experiencing something is real um, that other uh, video download sites do not do. You know, video streaming sites. Mm-hmm. But I think I will refrain. Rather than you know, end up in federal prison, I guess I'll just shut up. <laughs> it's, right a good, now. it's a good way to go. And 
<laughs> so looking looking at the the idea of these these world cycles, uh, and, and the Maya, of course, aren't the only culture that that view things in this way. Uh, yeah. And numerous other cultures who look at these world cycles also kind of point to uh, 2012 as some sort of significant date. Yeah, well, a perfect example and something that we can relate to as Westerners is um, the astrology. We're just not as uh, accurate, not anywhere near as accurate as the Maya. Well, we're looking um, at this as being what the... To, to quote the uh, the hippie song, you know, it's the dawning of the age Yay. of Aquarius. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it, I mean, it's the same idea. Uh, they saw things in terms of worlds um, that were pretty regularly 2,000 years in length, and that had to do with um, what constellation was dominating the sky. I'm sorry, there, somebody was trying to call me just now. Um so what you have, because there is this thing called the procession of the equinoxes, and there's some interesting stuff about that in the book and what causes that and what that is and what that takes to even know anything about mm-hmm. is multiple generations of very accurate and uh, timekeeping and looking at the stars and looking at, you know, and really knowing the positions of where things are relative to where they were yesterday, the day before, etc. And um, in the Western tradition, Hipparchus, the Greek in um, first century AD, is credited with discovering the um, procession of the equinoxes, but uh, John Major Jenkins argues that the Maya were clearly aware of that before. Uh, hand, and that's what many of these ages are, are based on. Certainly, ours is a relic of a Babylonian system of a world age doctrine, which is what this end, this 2012 business is also part of a world age doctrine. And, um, that the Hindus continue to this day to have a world age doctrine where they believe in an age of a golden age, a silver age, a bronze age, an age of iron, which we're in right now, which is also known as the age of vice, um, and luckily is the shortage, shortest of all the ages, and the most dense, and the most material, and the most physical, and it's characterized by everything that we see around us, you know, literally, and when one of the, the founders of, the founder of Tibetan Buddhism was a, also a northern Indian guy, uh, Prince. Um, who near like the Pakistan area, Padma Sambhava, who is also known as Dogchen, he founded what is now Tibetan Buddhism, and he would he was a badass. If you really look him up, he was quite something. He had five concubines with him at all times. I mean, this wow. idea of it's it's not he's not your grandma's uh, Buddhist monk or whatever. And but anyway, what he said sounded like it sounded so imp- must be so impossible back then. But now it's absolutely like totally what happens. So he was saying, "Oh yeah, you'll know we're in the Kali Yuga when uh, people you'll see people eating standing up, maybe even running on, on the run, and uh, when you can buy books on enlightenment." on enlightenment on street corners. And I, and I was just thinking, well, 
we're definitely in the Kali Yuga then, based <laughs> on his predictions. I think we have a and call on the line here. Okay. If you don't don't mind taking some calls here. No, I'm good with it. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Alexandra Bruce. How are you? Good. How are you doing? This is Keith. Hey, Keith. How are you? Good. How are you Hi. doing? Happy Wolf Moon tonight. Oh, thanks. It's it's a all right. It's a is that what it is? It's the Wolf Moon. It's the um, the moon is the largest appearing. It will be all year, and uh, very large and bright. Uh, although it's partially obscured by the clouds now, and Mars is right next to it as like a oh, little cool. bonus there. So it's the quite a spectacle out tonight. I was out earlier and uh, really really brilliant. Oh, I will definitely check that out. I'm in it's LA. Really which is yeah, I have a question for uh, Alexandra. Or rather, you know, a comment that um, with the uh, 2012 and all the hype about it, I see a lot of, uh, personally, I see a lot of uh, conspiracy theory in it. And I don't know what your take is on that, but I do see a lot of, uh, and potential for cults rising and uh, really leeway because, um, I mean, you know, in, in 999 A.D., New Year's Eve, people thought that would be the end of the world, the end of civilization, and it said that, uh, Nearly all of Iceland converted to Christianity just in case. You know. uh, sure, a lot of people became pregnant, too. but uh, Right. Yeah. Well, um, I was just wondering your theory on that. Well, I don't, I don't really have a lot to say about that, except for that um, I have people who are, you know, deeply into those kinds of studies, which I used to be in, but sort of avoid, like, the plague a little bit now having uh, had my home broken into and, and really knowing that, you know, mm. that national secrets are not, a, not my business. <laughs> you know, right. I might, they might be part of my tax dollars, but they're no, none of my business anyway. Um, so um, I have been told by some that, yeah, they're going to, the powers that be is what they call it, because it isn't, there is no such thing as the United States. These things are all to these people, illusions. The United States was allowed to become the world power that it was on purpose, to become the, the police force of the planets for the banks, banksters, the old ruling elites of Europe, and um, that they are going to use the 2012 mess to, the, to suit their interests. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a thing that already existed. Uh, you know, in the Mayan calendar, but... Um, so Alexander Hamilton wasn't responsible after all? <laughs> what? Uh, Alexander Hamilton wasn't responsible it? for the uh, American economy? Well, he was, he was, no. Well, I, you know, that's, that's one of those things that really kills me because I really feel very strongly about the Constitution and, yeah. for example, uh, another film that we're... Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm gonna get on everybody's radar tonight. It's really, there's no, <laughs> no escaping it. There was a book by, uh, Vincent Bugliosi, who was an LA prosecutor for 30 years. Oh yes, very familiar and, with him. Yeah. Right, okay. He wrote a book called The Prosecution of, his latest book is The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder. He, you know, he's had three number one New York Times bestsellers, um, 14 top 20. Okay, three in the top three or something like or whatever. In other words, a, a rarely, I mean, like one of the most successful authors ever, on top of being perhaps the 
the most pros- the most successful prosecutor in history. Right. He prosecuted um, Manson, obviously. Yeah. Right. He prosecuted a total of 106 cases during his career, lost only in one case. And I actually have to look into that one uh, lost case. So there was a Canadian production company uh, who put up the funds to and to to shoot the the film version of the book, but the edit was really not working, and then they tried to re-edit it, and it got even worse. So somehow we got in the mix, and we've fixed it, and it's brilliant, and it's coming out soon, I think, really soon, like before March. Um, And it'll be theatrically released, and you'll hear about it. The people who are behind it are more they're old fashioned and not video and demand dish. You know, they like they, they know about movie theaters. So. Yeah, exactly. So so Keith, you're not buying the uh the twenty twelve hype, is that the case? Uh, um, not not totally. Not totally. I'm not uh, totally immersed in it. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh like I said, conspiracy theory about it. Not that uh it was invented by conspiracists, but uh mm-hmm. I do believe that they have really taken the reins, hold of the reins and a lot of people are you know, going to be benefiting from it in one way or another. Well, I, I highly recommend you pick up a copy of Alexander's book, 2012 Science of Superstition. I certainly will do that, and I look forward to reading it. And it's uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Alexandra. Likewise. And it's really more about the connections between everything than just 2012 itself. It goes way beyond 2012. Well, I look very and much look forward to it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Keith. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, let's let's just take a little bit of a step back, Alexandra, just to to kind of give people the idea of how this date came about. Um, I guess we should probably start with how the Mayans view time differently than the way we do. Yeah, they were definitely in a different time space than we were. They uh, it was only in around the time that they created the long count calendar. Um, in 200 or so B.C., that they felt the need to distinguish one year from the other. They they hadn't really needed, found it a need to see things from a linear point of view. Everything to them was cyclical. And it was just a, um, a 50, the, the main cycle was the, the lunar cycle, which the full, you know, from the beginning to the end of that cycle was a 52-year cycle that actually locked into a solar cycle, like a 365-day cycle. So, And that's all that they needed because the, the lifespan of the people wasn't longer than that, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and each, there, there was a combination that added up you know, between each one to, like, I don't know, 26,000 names, you know, that had a special oracular meaning to them. So if you were born on such and such day, it meant that, oh, okay, and it would inform perhaps what name the parents would give to you. It would probably tell you what a good uh, time, date to get married would be. And it was also, if you look at it, uh, it was based on the the planting of the corn and the uh, gestation of a human baby and things like that. So it was a very organic, it was based on uh, on astronomical observations, and yet it was based on things like organic and and biological, you know, human biological functions. So mm-hmm. 
and that's that's the point of view that John Major Jenkins, you know, likes to propound. Is this very? He calls it a cosmo vision, an integrative vision of. And I think that's a very cool and interesting way to to understand these people. That they didn't see themselves as separate from the stuff out there. They were still geocentric. Like they didn't understand. There's no proof that they were anything like us now who understand that we're, you know, flying at about, you know, 600 miles per second, you know, towards a great attractor like our entire uh, solar system is flying towards, you know, the Sagittarius constellation. We're actually in a part of the universe that's not expanding. It's actually collapsing. So that whole theory is also, to me, a little... Bogus. I mean, like, if you believe the Big Bang, you may as well believe anything. And, of course, science is just as much uh, a, a group. Any kind of cosmology is asking you to suspend your belief. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, so, anyway, we're, we're um, I don't know where we were, but so we're, we're, we're headed towards the Great Attractor, and we have about 150 million years, so that's, not, uh, not much time. Been. Get, yeah. your, uh, get your shopping done now. But right. <laughs> basically, though, what they did, though, is they, as you said, you know, they kind of lived, they kind of lived within the natural cycles of what went on. Um, mm-hmm. But they created this long count calendar. And as you said, it was kind of late in their reign that they created this. Yeah. Uh, do we know what the impetus was, why they decided to, to start creating this long count calendar? Well, there's a guy who's written a whole thing. What's his name? He's really one of the greatest writers I've run across lately. I'm, I'm like scanning my bookshelf, trying to find this guy. But he wrote that it was basically, yeah, it's, it's the, the patriarchal. It's the patriarchal linear need to know, you know, to control and to... He says that it was the end of really the classic Maya civilization, the beginning of the end, and the decline of the same. And certainly, by the time the Spanish conquistadors arrived in um, Mexico, the Longtown calendar had been out of use, and uh, the, the, the Maya pyramid building, you know, societies and cities and cosmopolitan, you know, centers were no longer and hadn't been for some 500 years, which was actually a, a great thing in some ways because it helped to preserve a lot of those pyramids from being desecrated by the Spaniards because they weren't even found, most of them, until the 20th century because they were so covered with uh, tropical vegetation. Well, if if the calendar fell out of use with the Maya themselves, why are we getting so worked up about a date that's on a calendar that they didn't even really pay attention to anymore? Well, because they found on one of the stella something to do with a creation god, one of the gods that's always there when um, a world is being created, when a, when this world is created, mm-hmm. that something about him descending from the sky, and then a word that has something to do with wartime on a place called uh, Tortuguero, on a monument that's there. And it was uh, the first time that it was ever referred to was in a book published in 1966 by Michael Coe, 
from Yale University, who is one of the, the leading Mayanists of all time in terms of uh, studying Maya culture for the West and, and, and trying to give an understanding of what their culture was all about for the West. Uh, but in some highland areas, they still use the, the lunar calendar that I was talking about mm-hmm. before the cyclical one. They, they, you know, they went back to just using the old one, and the Aztecs had one also, and many. Um, there's this idea that these that these things all live in a vacuum from each other. They didn't absolutely not. They completely cross pollinated and, and traded with one another, and and certainly uh, toward the very end of the Maya days. They merged like the area of Yucatan, that pyramid, and the famous one that's on the cover of my book, is an expression of a fusion of both Maya and Aztec um, cultures and cosmologies and cosmogonies, you know, of, of gods. And, you know, you'll see the plumed serpent is going up and down the stairs and does this trick once a year during, I forget, during some kind of a... Um, not an ecl- what's it called? The equinox, I think, is when it happens. And the in the god is Quetzalcoatl, right? And that's and that he's called Kukul Khan in Maya in the in the Yucatec Maya dialect, but Quetzalcoatl in um, in Aztec, and he's an important god um, in in both uh, religions. And so there they found a commonality, and they, they put him as he's like the major feature of that pyramid, the step pyramid, that's very beautiful. And um, they had, and they started to engage in some of the practices that the that Aztecs were more into, like human sacrifice. Not that they hadn't done human sacrifice before, but certainly not on the scale and not driven um, by the same, uh, I think... Uh, reasons, <laughs> justifications. Um, the, the Maya had a thing called the ball game where they reenacted uh, stories in the Popol Vuh, which is basically their version of the Old Testament. There was a vast body of literature that the Spaniards burnt, and very little of what the Maya wrote actually survives, like maybe four important pieces. And one of them is the Popol Vuh, which is, um, and there's a couple versions of it. There's one called the Dresden, the Dresden Codex, which was sort of haphazardly found in somebody's library. It was just sort of tucked away, and they're like, oh, my God, this is, like, <laughs> this is a very important, historic, you know, museum-quality document here. This is like the Maya Bible over here, um, which describes the creations to many uh, worlds that were created, like that you see in Roman and uh, Greek, and to this day in the Hindu cosmologies. Um, and there's even a Hindu Noah where he he in the last whatever cycle it was was charged with um, saving whatever plant and animal life and humans that he deemed were savable and put them onto this. What had been a tiny little guppy that had begged to him, please save me from being eaten by the bigger fish. So he put him in a little bowl and then he kept it, the thing kept growing and he had to put it into bigger and bigger things, like into a huge tank and then finally 
lake and then eventually the ocean, and then it revealed to him that it was the god Vishnu, and it came to tow away all of the, you know, things that he had decided to save. Hmm. And we we would be the descendants of, as in the Noah myth, we are the descendants of whoever he saved. Well, we are coming up on the news, so we're gonna we're gonna run out of time in this hour uh, to okay. get, to get into some of these ideas of what could be happening in 2012. But in the next hour, after we do the uh, the week in weird, I want to talk with you, Alexandra, about the different schools of thought of what the Maya calendar might be pointing to. Is okay. it is it you know solar activity? Is it Earth changes? Is it climate changes? Is it a spiritual awakening? And that's boy, I hope it's the last one. Yeah, <laughs> because that's going to be the easiest one to get through, I think. Yeah. So uh, we'll talk about all of that, and, and of course, by doing that, we'll also talk more about the work of John Major Jenkins and uh, some of the others. But uh, before before we um, go for the news, uh, I do want to remind everybody, though, as we said before, there is a book and a film, both titled "2012: Science of Superstition," available from disinfo.com and linked up on spookysouthcoast.com. And Alexandra said it, and it's. It's promoted as such as the book being the complement to the film, but I really see it as kind of like the the film as a way to kind of get you into the basic ideas of what's going on, then pick up the book and really start to get involved in it. That's that's the way that I did it, and, and I mean that's the opposite way of the way that I did. It. I wish I had done it the other way because, you know, by the time I'm done getting through the book and I start watching the film, I'm like, but there's so much more. You need to cover more. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but films can only do what they can do, and that's why there are books, you know. Exactly, and so it's it's definitely for anybody you know that's worried about you know 2012, pick them up the package, you know, get the book, get the DVD, give them that, and say here at least be armed with the facts and stop worrying about just the fear. Right. Oh, that's definitely definitely don't worry about any you know, got nothing to worry about really. And uh, you know, we're all gonna die anyway. I mean, it can be in a mass, you know. Mass situation, or just you know, we're gonna die. Period. Well, as Doctor Avini says in the book and in the film, the world's gonna end anyway. It doesn't mean it's gonna end at that time, but it is going to happen. It is definitely so one way or another, and they keep pushing it up. Because when I was little, they were saying that the sun was gonna turn into a red giant in about two billion years or something, and I was like, oh no, because by that time, the, the literal diameter of the sun surpassed what is now the orbit of Mars. So, of course, we would have been swallowed up into the sun by that time. But uh, the, there are later, study, more recent studies saying I'm, that the... I'm sorry, i got to cut you off. we got to go. Sorry. Okay. We'll pick it up next hour. Okay. Spooky South Coast is back. Are you ready? I am ready. I am always ready. I have been ready. I am ready. Supernatural or something that isn't supposed to happen. 
Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And in just a few minutes, we'll get back into the discussion about 2012 Science of Superstition with Alexandra Bruce. But for right now, we have a few... Uh, few things to go over, and then, of course, we'll do the Week in Weird. Uh, coming up next week, our guest will be Joe Nisgoda, who's going to talk with us about the Lennon Prophecy, his book about whether or not John Lennon sold his soul to the devil in order to make the Beatles the biggest band in music history, and if his tragic death in 1980 was a result of that pact. Uh, the book is fascinating. Uh, I've heard Joe on other radio shows, and he goes over some of the clues that are in the songs of both the Beatles and Lennon and his solo work. So, in adi- you know, in addition to having the Paul is dead rumors and the Beatle death clue mystery to go through, in relation to the Paul McCartney story, now we can go back through and look for some of the things in terms of John Lennon. So, expect to be hearing a lot of Beatles music on ne- next week's show. Uh, well, there's there's something interesting, and I'm going to talk to Joe about this during the week to see if if it's cool. But uh, he basically lays out a a map in the book, an outline of everything based on the songs. It's like, okay, this song is explaining how this happened, and then this song, almost like a linear progression of how it happened. So maybe we'll be able to put that together in some sort of audio package and and, uh, make it available for people to listen to, or maybe we'll play it on the show. But uh, that is next week's show, and uh, we have plenty of other great things in store. I can tell you that coming up in a few weeks, we're going to have the next Balzano Breakdown. I talked with Chris yesterday, and he's working on a doozy, so you're not going to want to miss that. And, of course, all kinds of other good things coming up in 2010 because you know, we just want to keep making the show bigger and better, and we appreciate any suggestions that you want to make. Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Uh, remember, if you're new to the program, you can download pretty much every episode that we've ever done right off our website or through podcasting services like iTunes or Zune and uh, wherever else you might find podcasts. And we're trying to get syndicated, so if you want to, you know, recommend to to other stations, networks, whatever, uh, th- that you'd like to hear Spooky South Coast on their airwaves, you know, feel free to give them um, my email address, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com. They can get in touch with me, and we can try and get something going because we figure uh, we get such a great lineup of guests and, and interesting topics. Uh, it really, like we say, we always say it has nothing to do with us. It's the the people that we bring on and the fact that our we like to think of our forum as being kind of unintrusive toward them telling what it is that they have to say. So uh, we, if we can keep following with that format and bringing this information to people, why not get it to a bigger audience? So that's our plans for 2010 and beyond. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, we'll be here December 21st, 2012. We'll be here broadcasting. I was telling Matt while you were in here because the 24th is a Saturday and I'm not going to come on on Christmas Eve. Yeah. So I'll have, you know... I'll have to worry about Santa, so we'll just move it to Wednesday night that night and just be here for December 21st, 2012. Okay. Works for me. We're not worried. We're not concerned. Although if it is the con- the coming of a new global consciousness, what better way to, to get it started than right on Spooky South Coast? And I guess that night will be Carrot Top. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. Uh, what else did I want to discuss before we move forward? Oh, uh, American Paranormal. Uh, with all these new shows that are coming out, like Paranormal Cops and you know new seasons of the existing Paranormal shows, I think this show might get kind of lost in the shuffle. But it's uh, it's on the Nat Geo channel, the National Geographic channel, and it's uh, fascinating. I watched two episodes last week. Uh, one about uh, Bigfoot, 
and one about the haunting at Eastern State Penitentiary and the idea of ghosts in general. And they really do take a very scientific approach, and they they break things down, they experiment. They uh, they were talking about the trying to recreate the musculature of the Patterson Gimler film, the Bigfoot creature in that, trying to make an ape suit uh, that I, would be comparable. I got asked by uh, a friend of ours down in Ohio, Don Keating, to come and uh, help out with the Bigfoot conference down there and one of the people i'll be hanging out there with will be uh bob gimlin wow yeah pretty so, good get him on the show uh that's my intention <laughs> and uh just the and the ghost one was fascinating i mean i was i was bothering moniz the next day neutrinos tell me about these could these be what ghosts are can we positively charge a neutrino to make it visible and then take the electricity away and he describes me no no you can't so that's that's basically all you need to know about that uh, but just a, a fascinating program, and, and I highly recommend checking it out if you get the chance, either viewing it live or on demand. All right, well, we've got a few minutes here. We've got to kind of move this along quick because we want to get back into the 2012 discussion. But uh, at least for a few minutes, let's get a little weird. Well, i got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. The Week in Weird. All right, our first story comes from the Telegraph in the UK. Voters believe that overweight male candidates were more reliable, honest, dependable, and inspiring than their thinner counterparts. Vote Weisberg in 2040. (laughs) They also thought they would be better able to cope with the stresses and strains of public office. The direct opposite was true for female politicians, the study found. Uh, according to Dr. Elizabeth Miller, a political scientist at the University of Missouri and co-author of the study, she says physical appearance may play a more important role than researchers and candidates have noted. Potential candidates would be remiss to ignore such stereotypes in contemplating a run for political office. The study involves splitting a group of 120 volunteers, 75 of whom are female, into two groups and introducing either uh, introducing each group to either a fictitious female or male candidate. The written description of each candidate was the same and provided a brief outline of the candidate's political affiliations, views, and social background. The two groups were then split into two further groups who were either given a natural picture of the candidate or a morphed picture of the same person made to look obese. They were asked to assess their candidate on a 0 to 100 scale depending on how much they warmed to them. They were also asked to assess them on a number of competent criteria, inclu- competence criteria including reliability, dependability, honesty, ability to inspire, and ability to perform. In all cases, the obese picture of the man increased his scores, but for a woman, it decreased it. Overall, the obese man was 10% more uh, more liked than his thin counterpart. The study published in the journal Obesity concluded that these findings could correspond to societal expectations for women to be thin and men to be large. The pressure said that uh, research said the findings may not be so surprising as, quote, there is significant pressure for women in Western society to to be thin, but for men, there is pressure to have muscle mass. Well, I've got plenty of muscle mass right here. And uh, if, uh, you know, if, if they can get me elected, then, uh, <laughs> you know, I, th- I thought you had to go out and shake hands and kiss babies, but uh, apparently all you have to do is go out and eat chicken wings and double cheeseburgers. Yeah, sign me up. I'm all for that. <laughs> that Maybe that's uh, why you have term limits, though, because... You, know, you, you figure if you get four years or eight years out of somebody, you're, you're kind of pushing it after that. Yeah. It, by that count, Strom Thurmond must should have been like <laughs> nine hundred pounds. pounds. Yeah. All right, Matt. Uh, what do you have for us? 
Australian scientists are hoping to <coughs> hoping to breed sheep who burp, burp less in a bid to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The agricult- agriculture sector in the nation's second largest biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions behind the energy sector, produ- producing about 16% of Australia's total emissions, so says the Sunday Mail. Two-thirds of that figure is produced by livestock, and 66% of those emissions are released as methane from the guts of grazing livestock, such as sheep and cattle. (coughs) Australia's uh, Sheep Cooperative Research Center is conducting a first world study into 700 sheep with with 20 different genetic lines. Each is fed... Then she paired it into a, a booth where scientists measure burp outputs. Yeah. People get paid for that. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to a sheep burp. Uh, one study leader, Dr. Roger Haggerty, said sheep uh, burp large amounts of methane, and there was an environmental pressure to see whether that could be minimized. Uh, Dr. Haggerty said... Reach- Researchers were wary not to produce other problems in their bid to reduce the animal's carbon footprint. Methane is exhaust from livestock. And just as a... Exhaust. Exhaust. (laughs) Coming out the tailpipe. (laughs) And just as you can't put your hand over the exhaust pipe of a car and expect it to keep running, we're treading carefully to reduce emissions without causing other problems. So he says. So... Apparently, sheep sheep burping is what's ruining. I, I'd ruining say don't the world. don't give him soda. <laughs> That's probably a good idea. And that I, I don't think I've ever heard though. Like I've gone to petting zoos and experienced sheep, and and like the occasional farm, and I've never heard like meh, meh. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't know methane came from uh, that end. It can, yeah. Oh. Well, I guess if it's bad enough, can you light it on fire? Come out from well, anywhere. You got. You're talking about that type of animal, though. That's one of the main things. All right, well, it makes me All rethink right. wanting to wear a wool sweater. Matt Moniz, uh, you have something that's actually pretty uh, pretty timely for tonight's discussion. Yeah, got something from uh, CBC.com. Mexican archaeologists have found a, an 1,100-year-old tomb from the twilight of the Mayan civilization that they hope may shed some light on what happened to the once glorious culture. Archaeologist uh, Juan Yoden said that the tomb and certain ceramics from uh, another culture found around it may reveal who occupied the Mayan site of uh, Tonia in the southern Capaya state after the uh, culture's classic period began fading. Many experts have pointed to internal warfare between Mayan states or environmental degradation as possible causes for the Mayans' downfall starting at around 820 A.D. But Yudin also, also says uh, he oversees the Tonia site for the Mexican National Institute of Anthropology and History, and he said that the artifacts from the uh, Toltec culture found in the tomb may point to another explanation. He said the the tomb's dates between the years 840 and 900, that would be A.D., I assume. It's clear that this is a new wave of occupation. The people who built this grave 
of the Toltec type, Yudin said, is of the Yudic type, uh, Toltec type, sorry. This is a very interesting because we are going to see from the bones who these people are after the Mayan Empire. The Toltecs were from Mexico's central highlands and apparently expanded their influence into the Mayan strongholds in southern Mexico. They are believed to be the ones who have dominated central Mexico from the city of Tula, just north of present-day Mexico City, between the 10th and 12th centuries, before the Aztecs rose to prominence. So it's kind of uh, strange that looking on the, the news wires, you know, to find a Maya story today on the, the day that we're talking about, 2012, in the Maya Long Count Calendar. Yeah, and then the Toltecs taking over their territory after they had disappeared. You get that in a lot of different cultures. When a culture rises to power and then falls, starts to fall apart, all of these other little subcultures around them now get a chance to flourish because... And then they assimilate some of that. Right. right, Well, that is the Week in Weird for this week. If you have anything you'd like to submit, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the Forum tab, go to the Week in Weird thread, and you can put the story right in there or put a link to it. And if we use it on the air, we will send you a Spooky South Coast bumper sticker. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we will finish our discussion with Alexandra Bruce about 2012, Science of Superstition. We're going to talk about some of the theories of what exactly is going to happen on December 21st, 2012. Is the world going to end? I hope not, because uh, that's the day that I, I have planned to, to finally get Star Trek from my Netflix. So it's, uh, it's in, in my queue. All right, well, uh, hang on. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. You know, as much as I appreciate the <clears throat> blind faith that we have, that 2012 won't be a a year of utter destruction of the entire world, I also love the blind faith that Matt Costa has, that when he looks up something on YouTube and plays it, it'll be <laughs> completely clean and ready for air. Yep. You just Never steer me wrong. <laughs> dive in with both feet there. <laughs> Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the aforementioned silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. We're going to get right back into the discussion. 2012, Science for Superstition, with the author of the book of the same name, Alexandra Bruce. And Alexandra, one thing that we didn't get to ask you about uh, in the first hour, but I'll, I'll just ask you here uh, while, we, while we have a few minutes, but... Uh, of course, it says in your bio that you went to Brown, which is nearby us. We're in uh, the south coast of Massachusetts. But also, you had a, a earlier company uh, producing and, and working on music videos. Yes. Um, when I was a um, sophomore at Brown, I spent Christmas vacation as an intern at MTV. And so I got to meet a bunch of people who were then PAs who 
many years later, had turned into bigwigs at the company. And um, by that time, I'd, I'd graduated from college, and I was actually working on Tougher Than Leather, which was Russell Simmons and Rick, Rick Rubin's first film, starring Run DMC and the Beastie Boys. And I was the art director. I just... I had actually done another uh, independent film before that, so I had an you know one of those credits. So that you know, in that tiny world of independence being made in, in New York at that time, I got the job, and that's how I actually got to be friends with Russell before he was famous and rich and known you know all around the world. And so, when he did become a rich, famous guy, he trusted me as someone who liked him for himself as a friend because we had the most hilarious and fun conversations but actually he had he only hired me for one video I, I couldn't even believe it I mean because um, considering that we almost hung out twice a week every week going out because that was basically our office I mean it was a, it was a tough life what could I <laughs> but um uh, actually, it was this one label that gave me 15 of them, and it, w- it was a, a gay man who, who commissioned them for me. So it was really only that he liked my, my reel and my work that I had done as a film student that then got me videos, that then got me more and more videos, had many repeat customers, and um, was very successful at it. And there was one point, which was crazy, which you'd turn the TV on, and it'd just be my stuff straight. Because wow. it started off being like a hate thing, like where where all the people who thought it was you know, the, the argument was that MTV was a rock and roll station, but it really rock and roll was kind of in its death throes at that moment. And it was before grunge kind of helped bring it back and mm-hmm. other things, other developments. And uh, it was just like hair bands, you know, just like that. It was Scorpion. It was. Motley Crue, it, you know. Hey, you're talking which, about my peeps. Uh, I know. The I don't really, yeah, I'm not even saying Motley Crue. I actually like a lot of Motley Crue songs. But I'm talking about cooked hair. I'm talking about guys wearing lingerie. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, like, maybe this is not speaking about what's important. And that's what rap was, in fact, doing. And, in fact, um, it's so, with a, a really good analogy, a good story to tell about this is that scene in the first film, uh, the comedy film Airplane, mm-hmm. when the when the old lady translates the two black guys speaking <laughs> jive. The jive, yeah. The thing is, is that if you watch that movie now, you totally understand what those guys are saying, and you don't need her to translate it for you because you've been listening to rap you know, records for like. 20 years now, and you totally know what those words mean, or, you know, if you pay any attention to rap music at all. So I found that hilarious, because I don't think there'd be a Barack Obama as president if there hadn't been um, a rap music, who, you know, that became powerful, and uh, a powerful force in pop music. Who were some of the acts that you got to work with in that capacity? No, no, who uh, I did videos for you, um, EPMD, Run DMC, I did... For a special ed, I got it made, which is actually quoted in the latest Jay-Z uh, record in mm-hmm. New York. And um, I, I did multiple videos for a lot of these guys. Uh, who else? I did things for, for guys whose... The, the videos were incredible, but the songs never made it. And, like, the way 
play, airplay got determined at MTV was by had was completely pegged to black to um, Billboard. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of the stuff you might have done might have only gotten aired during Yo. Well, it was there. Yes, exactly. But in general, it was. But then there was a time when Yo would play tw- twice a day and was an hour long. Mm-hmm. Or more, two hours long for each time. So it was like it seemed like it was on all day, and that was at its height. And then it scaled back, I guess, after too many people got angry that it was like, "What is this?" You know, too if much I want rap. That, too much rap yeah. in my TV. <laughs> right. So, did, did, but the fact is, it was the only music that really was saying something. At absolutely, the time. and and I, I mean, today, I mean, I I work with a lot of young kids, and, and I have to explain to them, no, no, no. You know, young Jeezy and all this stuff you're listening to, that's, that's not rap. You're listening yeah. to what's essentially the, uh, the poison and the, the glam metal of rap. You know, go back and right. listen to some of the Bob Dylans of rap. Um, yeah, listen to, listen to Chuck D. Listen to Public Enemy. Yep. Please. KRS One, uh, Tribe Called yeah. Quest, anybody, you know. I produced, I produced KRS One's first video, My Philosophy. Oh, did, and did you work on, you mentioned Run DMC. Did you work on either of my two favorite Run DMC videos, either It's Tricky or Kings of Rock? No, those were before, Okay. a little before my time. I was still like in Internville. Because I, I love, I love I the... one of their uh, last videos that was like a lower budget, because they did like, they had one that, that had actual helicopters shooting it from, it was really kind of hot and... This guy Marcus, I forgot his eye, who was getting a lot of videos, got that job. But I got one where I got to explode a car for them. Nice. And, and we shot it at night, and I had a big crane in the middle of uh, Soho. And uh, that was called The Ass. And it's, you know, was never a hit. So unfortunately, you've never heard about it. But, but when we want to blow up a car, we know who to call. <laughs> <laughs> Either you or the IRA, one of the two. <laughs> well, what they do is they take, first of all, they take the de-hinge the hood every time just for more effect so that it definitely flies off because it's got to fly off. And, you know, there are all kinds of stuff. Like even when I, I did a video where I crashed a car into a cliff, they did that on, in that case as well. So it's like car guys who know all the tricks to make it look more dramatic, like for whatever, car accident things. Moniz can blow up cars too, but he doesn't use special effects to do it. He uses <laughs> missiles from his uh, personal rocket launcher. When you talk about a person that has 500 liters of nitroglycerin in his refrigerator. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, can I have a beer? All right, that's not a beer. All right, well, <laughs> we'll do, I think we could do a whole show sometime where we can actually just talk with you about some of the... the Rap history. Yeah. I might, you know, maybe that's a book I should do sometime. It's just, yeah, the thing yeah, is, yeah. is that it's sort of like racially incorrect. You know, I, I am, I am, uh, I passed for white, but the truth is I am half Brazilian, and there's a study that just came out that says that all Brazilians that didn't just come off the boat, which I do have one half of my Brazilian did just come off the boat, but um, the other half, so a quarter of me is Brazilian and is, and they said, they claimed it's like you can tell it, you know, save the drama for your mama, baby, because you're part black and that's, that's it. That's it and that's that. You know, mm-hmm. if you're Brazilian, you're part black and that's that. And Brazilians are really starting, it's interesting how they're beginning to embrace that, that, that part of who they are because so much of the way, uh, Brazilian Portuguese is spoken is very African, well, it, African inflected, 
and the music and everything about the culture is so African inflected. It, it kind of goes to the idea of what what this 2012 might be, though the fact that we're all kind of coming together as one one people. I really that's um, my take on it. Uh, certainly, the geomythology aspect is very much, and, and I want to start an educational series. I'm going to try to raise money to do something on geomythology where you can learn about geophysics, geology, art history because there's some beautiful Renaissance paintings of these Greek and Roman legends Mm -hmm. that are really talking about cometary impacts, you know, that are really astrophysical events, that then have geological artifacts left behind, like a lake and a debris field and things like that. So defragmenting the way that we learn things and sort of understanding the interrelationship of all things and that human history is astrophysical history. How could it not be? Of course it is. And which brings us to what in the world does 2012 portend? And there is something up. And it's been going on for over uh, a year since um, November 2008. We've been going through like a galactic arm. I guess as we seesaw, we have a movement. There's some really interesting new discoveries that have been made. And uh, a rocket was launched in November, uh, or December, sorry, it was late, but it was supposed to be launched in November. I talk about it in my book, the WISE infrared telescope that would be able to identify all of these objects that don't emit photons or um, other kinds of radiation that most of our equipment has been measuring up until now. It, it measures things that are maybe warmer than 100 degrees or 200, you know, like like a tea kettle boiling, like things. There literally are things like brown dwarves, uh, of which maybe it's quite possible that our sun has a twin, Mm. a a dark twin that is a brown dwarf that might be only 200 degrees in temperature and, and therefore invisible to telescopes because there are aspects of the procession of some items in the uh, inner solar system that don't precess. So if precession of the equinoxes is as it it is supposedly um, put forward due to some sort of nervous, weird tick, some sort of loony solar forces that that cause the Earth to move in angle one degree every 72 years um, in a cycle thus causing the age of uh, Pisces to change into the age of Aquarius and maybe the age of whatever it is that killed the Maya, you know, the last time from the water to this one, to this one ending. Um, These all being astrological or astronomical um, expressions of some kind or another, uh, that these things are not caused by the... um, Milankovitch effects, which is what it's called, these loony solar forces that are like make this twitch that makes the star, that makes the celestial sphere, the sky over, overhead change and move one degree every year, uh, every 72 years. Excuse me. Um, the, the theory of the binary star system says that, um, if that's what's doing it, 
and that that's why certain things within the inner solar system are not processing and should have been they should be in a totally different place in the sky if if these lunisolar forces are, are, are responsible for the procession of the equinoxes like um one of the many bodies of things that that fall that have been breaking up over our heads for the past 30,000 or so years according to the royal astronomer um which is comet Enki which it was a much once larger comet and it is, has only a 3 year um orbit from wherever it's at the edge of the atmosphere at the uh solar system to swinging you know by the sun which is what comets do and so comet Enki the trail of comet Enki is known as the Torrid complex as in Taurus, the, the constellation, okay. because that's the area in the sky. And we pass through it now because it's been happening for so long. We pass through it twice a year. We pass through it in um, early June and early November or something like that. Late June, I forgot, but it's twice a year. And this is one of the, it's, it's the largest mass of uh, ejecta in the inner solar system, and it does not precess. It does not move one degree every 72 years. It stays in the same place. It's getting dispersed, but it's because of time and, and gravitational forces, but it's not it's not following the rules and the movements and the angular whatever of the procession of the equinoxes. Oh, and, I was going to say we have a call on the line if uh, okay. you want to take that. Sure. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Alexandra Bruce. How are you? Hello? Okay. They can call back. If you want to call in with a question, 508-996-0500 or 1-877-996-0500. You can also email us, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com, and we'll get the question to Alexandra for you. Um, but, I mean, yeah, the idea of these of this possible twin solar system, the, the twin suns within the system is kind of fascinating. And uh, in the film and in the book, you can you can find out more about these ideas, but... Either way, it kind of boils down to the idea if there if there are two suns, we're getting into a point where they're getting closer together, and that's what's going to be, you know, no pun intended, this golden age. Uh, and we, like we said, we hope to think that that's what's going to happen. Uh, there are signs that that could potentially be what this December twenty first, two thousand twelve date is all about. We seem to be coming more spiritually aware we seem to be becoming more universally connected with each other and with our world uh, so is it possible that one particular day is going to make a huge difference in, in making that leap forward i don't know about one particular day but i certainly see you definitely see a bifurcation if you will of, of realities and i think very well expressed in the two movies um, to the two big blockbusters of this uh, year, there was the 2012 by Roland Emmerich, which was really uh, based on, a lot of it was based on this no longer credited, but, you know, I, you know still worthy of, of looking at after I've checked, um, theory of plate, that preceded plate tectonics that's called um, Earth Crust Displacement. And that's why you see, like, the ocean coming over the highest mountain range in the world, the Himalayas, because the entire crust of the Earth 
uh, there are those who believe, and you can go to sites that are listed in my book, the Flum Ask, flum-ask.com. I have a pretty interesting interactive site which uh, shows, the based on the theories of Charles Hapgood, who wrote a book called, uh, whatever, that outlined his theories about Earth crust displacement, and then they had a forward by Albert Einstein, who, who agreed with his theory. It's and a um, forward to get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe there's something to what you got to say here. And, and, and you don't want to, you know, and it, it, he just got thrown out the window in the 70s with the theory of plate tectonics. And that was the end of that for his theory. But uh, it maybe uh, Earth crust displacement deserves another look. I've heard. Very interesting things like how, um, I mean, it doesn't discount, maybe they can be used together, you know what I mean? Because plate tectonics talks about subduction of continental slabs. It's hilarious. I mean, the terminologies are very funny, but they call them slabs. (laughs) And then the slabs get sucked down beneath other continents, and they melt and become, you know, more, you know, part of that red you know, glowy part when you see the the cross section of the earth, you know, they become more like that, except for the um, graph gra- graphite most of most of what are, you know, carbon, you know, that that mm-hmm. makes up the rocks and stuff and the matter, uh, turns into basically graphite, which is famous um, for its use in pencils, which because of the shape of the molecule and the way that it it, it 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 it's in layers and sheets that, under pressure, are very slippery and leave behind remnants of themselves. So that's what a pencil is basically doing: is that it's leaving behind a piece of of a layer of carbon in a specific pattern, you know, in, in the gra- in the you know graphite uh, shape, you know, pattern of you know molecular shape of graphite but it's really carbon molecules. And that graph, but it happens to be one of the slipperiest materials in the world. So this is what's, this is an and, it has one, I think, the highest melting temperature of any known substance. So if this is the stuff that's going underneath, we have a huge, like, I think the Pacific Plate, and there's a hilarious, it's in my book, a picture of, this huge mass of Pacific plate that's now under the the North American continent, and it just looks like a big, like somebody like chewed a big blob of chewing gum and spit it out on the street, <laughs> and it's like underneath the the American continent, and um, and that's what sort of happens to this stuff. But you can see that maybe if we were hit by a really big asteroid, that that would cause massive slippage of the surface of the Earth. You know, not just, you know, a local bang, you know. It would actually move the whole surface of things. If Because if it is the slippery stuff in in the world and has the lowest, you know, melting temperature so that it's not just like water, it's actually like a, a viscous, you know, situation. And they admit that over geologic periods it does, uh, function in, in a viscous manner, and that's why we have continental drifts, which you can see in the Hawaiian Islands. You know, the oldest ones are the ones, the tiny ones at the end of the chain, 
and the big one is one of the newest ones, but there's a new one forming um, to the right of it, I mean, it's to the east of it, right? That's actually where the, the, the real vent is that's going to be the new Hawaiian Islands. Oh, get your real estate now while you can. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think a lot of the, uh, what people need to realize too, the 2012 movie, and I haven't seen it, so I can't really accurately say, but I think a lot of that is just, uh, Roland Emmerich's pension for special effects and, you know, uh, And apparently they suck. I didn't see it either, and that's kind of what kept me away. But basically, so there's your fear-based version, and, and this is something that John Major Jenkins uh, said to me when I was interviewing him for the film that we did, uh, about him. Uh, it, he said the more attached, that you are to the way things are and the way that we do business and the way that we produce and consume um, and the, into your material possessions and, and whatnot, the more like a Holocaust the coming times are going to look like. But the more spiritually oriented and the more um, into a progressive society that is people-centric and not corporate-centric, mm-hmm the more like um, heaven on earth this whole thing is going to look like. We've only got four minutes here, so this is going to be kind of a loaded question to ask in that brief amount of time. Okay. But considering the many other things that we talk about on this program, is it possible that the reason, the impetus for this enlightenment, is it possible that December 21st, 2012, will be a day of expected first contact? Were there aliens, extraterrestrials that visited the mines that told them that this would be the date they would return? Is the fact that the sun is lined up with the center of the Milky Way galaxy kind of like the doorway opening for them to come back? Is this something that is at all talked about among the, the Mayanists or among those who study 2012? It's certainly none of, maybe some of the fringe people, but none of the scholars, but I'll tell you something. Did you see, if you saw Avatar? I did. Finally. Um, especially in 3D, because in 2D, it's, you don't really get the effects. But Avatar, whether he knew it or not, I, I happen to know his current wife and his ex-girlfriend. So I asked him, like, how conscious is he of what he's doing? Because that movie is a movie about ascension. It's a movie about moving in from, into a higher wavelength of reality, choosing to leave your wheelchair body, your little puny, pathetic body, your horrible war machine, and to live in a nature-based culture of beautiful, you know, lean, gorgeous, uh, psychic, wild, fabulous creatures instead by going through the eye of the goddess and making it to the other side. Mm-hmm. So I think more along those lines. I think, you know, and that's where you have you have the, the Roland Emmerich model of and if you are really based on 3D materialistic values, then it's going to look like that to you. But if if you have an iota, if you're a spiritually oriented person, you might see it as more like going through the eye of Ewa and moving to the next level of consciousness and reality. So either way, we don't have to start cashing in our savings bonds and and uh, selling off our material possessions just yet. Well, not just yet. Well, I mean, you know, you, for your immediate, I think that the, the, the biggest problems are, are in 2010, I think this year and next year, are, you know, just for getting by and eating. Um, and, uh, I mean, yeah, it's always good to be fiscally responsible. 
So go well, for it. It helps the 2012, uh, the business of 2012 to have things looking so bleak right now because either you're going to say this is, you know, this is what we're gearing toward or you're going to say, hey, maybe this is the point where it all starts to get better. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it really does work for the mess. Um, it, it really kind of dovetails quite, quite nicely. So uh, with that being said, <laughs> since we're talking about the business of 2012, buy the book, 2012, Science of Superstition, <laughs> and the film by the same name. They're both available from disinfo.com, and they're linked up right on SpookySouthCoast.com. And definitely you want to pick them both up as a package and watch the film, read the book, find out all the facts before you just deal with the fear. Well, Alexandra, we want to thank you for joining us. We definitely want to have you back in the future. We can talk more about this topic, and, and yeah, we can do a whole show about uh, the early days. Yeah, of when we finally do release the 2012 film, I, I can come back, and then I have um, another film. Uh, these two other films, we have the prosecution of George Bush for murder. We have, um, which I don't know if we'll be involved with promoting. I mean, all we did was just re-edit it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that nobody out there will blow my head off. Like well, we it. hope not either. Yeah. <laughs> like you need it, it to, ma- to make more films and write more books. So, <laughs> right. And then um, the other thing is called uh, Discover the Gift, which is um, really the spiritual version of The Secret, which is really discovering what we're here to do and, and, and giving. There's this quote by the Michael Beckwith who says, we were not born to receive anything. We were born to give our gifts to the world and to truly be the gifts to God and that we are. Well, that's a fine way to end it. That's a fine point to make uh, for going forward. And, and we will definitely talk to you absolutely before December 21st, 2012. I look forward to it. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Alexandra Bruce. Again, the book 2012, Science or Superstition, Check it out at disinfo.com and linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com. Next week, we are back at our regular time, 10 p.m. We're going to talk to Joe Nisgoda, the author of The Lennon Prophecy, Did John Lennon Make a Pact with the Devil to Make the Beatles the Supergroup that They Became, and Did He Pay the Price for That with His Life? The clues are in the music, and we're going to talk about that next week with Joe Nisgoda. Until then, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen.